Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected. Uh, this is a special edition because we're in the car. We are driving to London. We are. We're going to Marleybone Parish Church on our favourite road, or one of our favourite roads, the A303, which winds through the countryside. Um, so, obviously, this is Histories of the Unexpected. This is the show where we demonstrate that everything, even the most unexpected of subjects, has a history and that all of those subjects link together in unexpected ways. It does. Uh, yeah. Like roads, toads and loads. And I'm doing that completely off the top of my head. We will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, demonstrating how all those links link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of trees, and I see a tree as I'm driving past an elderly people sign, the history of trees is in fact all about civil wars, restoration, hiding, Acorns, discovery, boats, shipbuilding, what yeah, more? Loads. The lean. I want to do the history of trees. It's our inspiration for the lean. So, roots as well. We thought that because we were driving around the country on tour at the moment, that we would try and utilise our time very usefully, rather like James Corden in, in what is it? Carpool karaoke. We're doing carpool car history, kind of. But basically, the principle is um, James and I have been driving all over the country. Where have we been the last few days? Like Bournemouth and. Bath, Winchester, yep. Salisbury, London today, Lustley, I mean, yeah. all over. And we, we've been talking about Winchester. pretty much uh, uh, nothing apart from the coronavirus. So we are doing a unexpected history of contagion. Yes. That's the plan. And um, we realise there are so many different ways you can think about contagion, which has been influenced and inspired, I think, by loads of wonderful journalism. I'm, I'm contemporary journalism in the press. Um, I've been very, very impressed with the way it's been covered and the way that different people are engaging with what's happening to our world at the moment. And one of the great things that I like doing as being a historian is you, you take the way that people think about the modern world and then you, you think about how that can apply to the past. And I think that there's uh, lots of ways that we could do that with the history of contagion, um, particularly with our changes of behaviour. So it's not just journalism, it's the changes of behaviour, the changes in the way that we are uh, talking about our lives, the way that we're behaving next to each other, leads us into all sorts of fabulous ways about thinking about contagion in the past. Absolutely. Um, and contagion has its own history. If you have a look at the history of disease and the impact that it has on society, the impact that it has on politics, it goes, it has an enormous history back millennia, millennia. I mean, you can, you can take it back to the ancient world and you can think about Thucydides on the Athenian plague, for example. I can't quote it since I have my hands on the wheel. Uh, however, <laughs> no, absolutely. You, the point is, yeah, there's a there is a there is a straight chronological history of contagion and disease, which is itself fascinating in yeah. its own right. Um, and I've come across this in my work um, a number of times, actually. Thinking about it, I was doing some stuff on the Black Death recently. I'm fascinated um, in how that spread and the different speeds in which it spread and how um, the Silk Road in particular, oh, this is how I came into it because I made my documentary on the Silk Road, was instrumental in the spread of the Black Death across Asia. So um, developed in China and merchants who were traveling along the, uh, the mountain passes and the, those desert highways were absolutely instrumental in passing passing the Black Death. Now, it also happened, of course, on ships, so you've got a major problem with the maritime Silk Road as well, 
So here you've got these trade routes running from China through the South China Sea, past Singapore, up the Malacca Strait, past Malacca onto India, from India to Africa. Um, and then overland, a little short little hop can take you overland. This is before they built um, the Great Canal in Egypt. Um, it can easily get from China to Europe to the, the shores of sunny Devon, believe it or not, incredibly quickly. Yeah, and it's the way in which trade routes in particular carry not only people, goods and ideas, but also they carry disease. Yeah. And you've got different germ pools mixing, so people with different resistance to different kinds of diseases coming into contact with people who are not resistant to that. And I think that that's what we're seeing today with the coronavirus, is that it is a new strain. I was talking to a colleague about this the other day, and he said that coronavirus has basically been around for decades uh, of differing kinds. What we have is a new strain now. But the key thing is that we have a test for it. And this is a, a guy who is a head of a medical school. So he's somebody who really knows what he's talking about. He said the difference is we have a test for it today. And so we are able to see when people have died of it. And often that kind of activity would just go completely unrecorded. It would be marked up as somebody dying of yeah. you know, with some kind of other disease. Yeah, I mean, they don't know what it is I mean, no. in, in the past. So actually understanding Pneumonia. what people are dying yes. for is a massive, a, a massive thing. And it's, um, it says something about the way that, that you know, medicine has developed over time. Yes. Um, but particularly this idea of it being linked with roads and trade routes, here we are, we're on the road now, um, is... Carrying, carrying disease to London. We might, we've kind of obsessively been washing our hands in the car. Um, we're going to talk about hands in a minute, actually. I should write that down as a topic. Uh, is un unanticipated consequences, right? So, so you've got yes. you've got this history of people um, trading and transferring and exchanging, but at the same time, you've got something that's hopping on the back of it, literally like a little flea, that you're not an expecting and anticipating. And there's a there's such a strong history throughout um, all human history of humans doing one thing, but something else happening something else unanticipated, unexpected happening at the same time. Um, you think about, I don't know, smartphones. So you've got people, you've got a technology which is invented for one thing, which is um, to allow people to communicate with each other, but it's unintended consequences we're seeing now are, are maybe impacts on people's mental health yes. um, and the way that that technology is actually affecting a different part of our lives, which we didn't intend it to. Yeah, um, so absolutely. That's, that's a very common thing, isn't it, which we can... Yes, we can... I mean, if you think about the, the impact of a disease on society more widely, or the society and the economy, what we're seeing at the moment is a sort of dislocation of, um, of the economy, the impact, certainly in the UK, that Flybee uh, has gone bust because of the uh, coronavirus, which is a direct impact. And if you had a look through history, you'd be able to see the kind of social and economic impact that various viruses have. If you think about the impact of the plague, you talked about the Black Death, throughout the medieval world, the impact that that has on trade and traffic, but also the impact that it has psychologically, the impact that it has psychologically on individuals in terms of how they start living their own lives, in terms of actually how they view themselves in relation to death. And also there's a really interesting creative aspect so if you think about the impact of the Black Death on the creative arts, and you can see the rise of something like the, the dance macabre, which we see developing during the Middle Ages, 
and this is a, a sort of um, creative output that uh, that visualizes skeletons among the living and there are some brilliant uh, examples of this that come into into high art you know a series of I mean there are processions of people you know walk, wandering along by horses and carts or dancing around in the circle and every other person is a skeleton uh, if you google dance macabre which yeah, I can't I do hands on the wheel uh, but you can see skeletons riding horses or skeletons dancing around with the with people every day and what it is supposed to represent is the everyday nature of death that is that is all around us yeah no it's it's uh, it's fascinating it makes me think of um the beginning of that james bond film in south america where, where uh, oh yes the the day of the dead the day of the dead yes uh, very interesting. It's exactly indeed. like that. It is, isn't it? But yes. a medieval period. But people basically are becoming increasingly aware of death tapping you on the shoulder. Um, yes. If you're interested in us talking about death, we've done two episodes on death, and it's fascinating. It really is the way people respond to it. Yeah. But it's also the impact of the impact on the literary world as well. You think about the number of books. Uh, that have been written in recent times and also, you know, historically about the impact of the plague, for example. You think about Camus' book, The Plague. You think about, uh, I'm reading a brilliant book with Book Club at the moment called Blindness, uh, which is about, uh, it starts with somebody crossing the road, he goes blind and then it suddenly turns into a contagion. Lots of people go blind. They then lock them up in, a, in an asylum and then the asylum burns down everyone who's got this disease escapes and goes out into society and it just society just breaks down yeah, yeah. so there are all these sort of literary engagements with it isn't there a film called contagion uh, yes as well? well contagions it's um yeah it's a it's a very very common thing isn't it for, for... virulent virus yeah yeah um well I, I like this idea of tests for things as well yeah. i think you could do a history of tests because Everyone concentrates, I think, in terms of technology and innovation in human history with a solution, right? So, so say you're ill with something, then um, particularly in the medical world, then the, the, whether it's scurvy, for example, right? So everyone's got scurvy on a ship in the 18th century. No, the solution is to have more lemons or more citrus, more fresh fruit and veg in your diet. But a key fundamental in that is actually finding out what's wrong with you before you can propose a solution to it. And I love this idea of having a history, of studying the history of tests, whatever that might be. So uh, it's allowing people to understand what what they're actually um, what they're actually confronting. And yes. usually they're very very clever, and the best ones are very very simple, and they're very very cheap. Um, so I'd love to look into that more. I think that would be brilliant. I think there's also the one of the things that I think is really interesting is thinking about understanding how. Um, virus or disease spreads and how people conceptualize it and we've got a lot of there's a lot of emphasis today on the way in which we are being encouraged to wash hands which is all about hygiene because the coronavirus is basically a, a, a sort of little acidic virus that sits in a membrane and the membrane is basically fat and if you wash with soap and water you are effectively killing it. You're washing away the fat. So it's why we're all being so, so you know, hygienic and, and having very good hand care. It's why we've got uh, spray in the car and all sorts of stuff. 
But anyway, it, what we have nowadays is a very advanced understanding of this kind of disease, this kind of virus and how it spread and how to treat it. But this isn't all, it wasn't always the case. And if you think about how people thought about the spread of the Black Death, uh, they thought it was spread by smell. And so you get all sorts of pomanders to sort of purify the air, and burning those amazing of incense. masks as well. Uh, yeah, they, yeah, the, the, the plague masks. masks yeah. Or if you think when we did, when we wrote our book and we wrote the chapter on the history of the cloud, one of the examples that we came up with there is the spread of cholera and how people conceptualised in a visual form the spread of cholera. And so you have this, there's this wonderful description in a northern Scottish village of a villager confronting what was effectively a sort of, what they saw as a cholera cloud. So they saw it as a, as a miasma. And, and so I think there's a really interesting history about how people view disease, how they understand it, how they conceptualize it, how they then, how they then ultimately treat it. Yeah, I think the physical manifestation of it's interesting as well. So we've talked about masks briefly there. You've got the plague masks, you've got everyone wearing masks. Today I've spent lots of my life in the last couple of years in China. It's very common indeed for people to be wearing masks. And um, to my mind initially it was very unusual. I'm now uh, completely, um, I, I, I see it as a completely normal thing, even, even if it's rare in the UK. Um, so there's a physical kind of result of what's going on here which is not just mask, it's also people not sitting as close to each other. Um, it's people not greeting each other in the same way. Yes. Um, I love this, uh, the elbow bump. I'm just going to adopt it. I think it's fantastic. Um, and I saw some um, people, I think it was some NFL footballers, I saw them doing an elbow bump on telly when I was watching it with my son the other day. And it looked very natural and rather good within the NFL setting. It's very cool. <laughs> but it does, it's not necessarily the same. And what I've been slightly struck by is how... Um, strongly some people have reacted to refusing to elbow bump yes i had this um, the other day and uh, we won't name names we came across a couple of people and like oh, i'm not gonna do that i've spent my entire life shaking hands i'd prefer to do nothing rather than elbow bump or whatever i, it I might met be. a very important gentleman the other day and uh, wouldn't shake his hand and he seemed to be mortally wounded and offended by this and said that he'd never he'd never elbow bumped in his life uh, wasn't going to start now uh, yet sir the um uh, Harry Wales uh, was seen elbow bumping. So if it's okay for, if it's okay for royalty, I think it's okay for most people. <laughs> but it is interesting the way in which the social protocols, the sort of codes of politeness that we have yeah. in everyday life that are around shaking hands, greeting. Because we're meeting a lot of people at the moment yep. when we're on tour, and especially when you arrive at a new venue and somewhere lovely. We were at Christchurch Priory in Bournemouth the other day, so an 11th century church is a truly amazing Beautiful. place. And I, I, I didn't shake hands um, with, with the people there, and it was all fine, um, but I, I didn't feel like I'd made a kind of bond with them. I found it very... Um, so I didn't elbow bump them or fist bump or anything, and the lack of physical contact definitely had an effect on yes. how I on on, on on how my what my my ongoing relationship with these people would be for the next hour and a half. Yes. I may be barking up the wrong tree. I may be just fantasizing here, but the the remarkable spread in Italy makes me think 
about whether the transmission of the virus is due to the incredibly tactile nature of Italian greetings. <laughs> you know, they're, know. They're, they're, they're touching, they're hugging, they're kissing, yeah. and you think, I mean, it would be, it'd be interesting to see how virulent colds and flu and that sort of thing are passed around, or whether it's literally that they that as a, as a state they didn't intervene early enough to close things down. Well that's actually interesting, okay, so it means that I wonder if you can look at societies throughout time and across locations to find out how their awareness of viruses affected their behaviour. I bet you can. I bet you can. Because I, I reckon, you know, if like um, Captain Cook's going to some islands in the South Pacific that the native understanding of sickness would be very different from the way Cook understood it. Um, I think you'd have some societies who would be increasingly more advanced than you might expect and put, um, put things into place to, to cope with that. I don't know the answer, but I, I can guarantee that not everyone is doing it in exactly the same way across time and geography. Definitely. And one of the other things that struck me when we're thinking about, about the way in which people, which societies behave and the way protocols of politeness and everything is that one of the ways in which communities deal with crises is often by banding together. So during the Second World War, there's a sort of very sort of community, communal spirit, everyone clubbing together in a very sort of um, national way, national pride, and um, greetings and, and all sorts of things, helping each other out. And yet what we're being asked to do now is something that is diametrically opposed to that. We are in a period of crisis but yet we are being asked to socially distance. And, ah. and that's something that, is, that I think is, is quite, is, is very unusual, yeah. certainly within our society. The first thing you want to do when there's a crisis is get together and talk to people about it. And suddenly we're not, <laughs> it's precisely that that will spread the, the disease. Mm, that's interesting. Mm. Um, we've got a lot of ideas, I think, coming up here, and we're going to do some, a series of dedicated podcasts later. Um, but you know, we'll just chat briefly about them now. But this idea of isolation, I think, is really interesting. I had a chat with my with my mum the other day, and um, she's in her seventies. And mum and dad, they're a bit worried about what to ha what's going to happen if they uh, become infected and how they deal with it. And and the sense I got of that, and also think listening to other accounts in the, the paper and the radio, is how you cope with loneliness. Yes. And so this idea of self-imposed isolation um, this is a, a, a new, this coronavirus manifestation of it it's, it's a new manifestation in something which has a long history so it's how how you deal with loneliness whether you're experiencing loneliness on an everyday level because um, you live on your own whether it's something that's just happened by way of your life development or you've chosen to live by yourself um, and how you deal with loneliness, or there's the concept as well of self-imposed loneliness. So hermits. Yes. Um, and you know whether or not you're doing it for a virus kind of doesn't matter because a, a lot of the, the same things will be shared, which means there is a there is a history in which a hermit um, shares will share some same experiences of someone who's um, yes. self-isolating from coronavirus. And we we are now we're recording this on the 12th of March. 2020 and in the UK and the COBRA committee are about to meet this afternoon to decide where we are going to go next as a as a nation in terms of the whether we are going to socially distance, close down schools and everything. And it seems to me that 
the we've had the rise of the expert uh, in recent weeks, so they're, they're taking expert advice. It seems the government is taking advice from two different kinds of people. They're taking advice from the medical experts, but they're also taking advice from the psychologists. And I think there's great concern, or two, two main issues here. One is that they're concerned that psychologically, if we decide, if the country decides to impose draconian restrictions on social mobility too early, the psychology of people is that they will think that everything has passed and that then we will get an epidemic later. And, but also, so they're worried about that, they're worried about the timing, but they're also worried about the psychological impact on people relating to loneliness. Ah. So if, if you go too soon, it's the social ills that will be of those, you know, elderly people, but not only elderly people, it's, it's also, uh, there are all sorts of people in society who are lonely, um, whether they are single mothers, you know, all sorts of, of demographic groups. Um, and it, and it's, the, it's the impact that it will have on them. Yeah, and I think it's really telling. And it's absolutely—it's it's profound. Whether you 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 read accounts of people um, suffering from loneliness now, or looking at it in the past, and the way that people experience it—I mean, there are charities out there that help people um, purely who are suffering from loneliness. Yes, um, it's a—it's a you know very very debilitating indeed. So uh, the loneliness aspect, I think, is fascinating. I'd like to look more into that. The other side of it, of course, is um, fear and panic. Yes. So. I, I'm a pretty uh, level-headed guy, I like to think, but I'm becoming slightly agitated, I would say. Are you? Yeah, I am a bit. Um, yeah. I'm, I don't know, it's a kind of a sense of, of just unease. Lucky I packed the disinfectant wipes and the 70% alcohol rubbing spray. I'm, kind of, I'm not worried about getting it, actually. No. Um, no. I'm, I, it's, um, it's more the kind of the uncertainty about disruption to daily life everything else what's going to happen um and so so there is this this understanding of 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 fear and panic and and how that can affect you saying the government is worried about fear and panic um governments have been worried about causing fear and panic for a very very long time indeed how you control the population how you deal with it um, responding to it, and that, that obviously has a history. We talk about it in relation to the Spanish Armada with our, our yeah. Tudors show. Um, and here, the idea is that there's a system of warning beacons all over the country beacons grouped in twos inland and threes by the sea. And they're used to communicate simple messages um, around the country with fire. Yeah. Um, we've actually talked about the way you use fire to communicate elsewhere um, in one of our podcasts. Go and check it out. And also, I mean, if you think about the way in which... But anyway, let me finish up. Yeah, the, yeah, the whole point on. is is that they, the, the Tudor state knew the Spanish were coming. Yes. They knew the Armada was coming. They knew there was going to be over 30,000 men, over 100 ships. They had very little they could do about it. And so what they didn't want to do was to cause a panic, to cause an epidemic of fear in which the country would become even less... Um, controllable and and you know the, the status of all sorts of things very very uncertain indeed so they they very carefully controlled the way that the message of the spanish armada was spread throughout the country yeah i mean in that that kind of state control of the mood of the population i think is something that you can see you know all all over you can see that historically in ancient rome and the way in which they would um you know, deal with the demands of the masses largely by, 
you know, distraction, for giving them enough bread, giving them enough entertainment so that you can contain them uh, from riot and rebellion and dissent. You see it in the Second World War, you know, the, the you know, keep calm, don't panic, carry yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. And that, that sort of the importance of keeping the nation under control so that they can all contribute to the war effort. So there's that, there's that sort of thing. Um, it seems today with social media and with the press that are chasing clickbait and with different regimes trying to interfere into other countries and with other governments and other democracies, that actually fear is something that the med certain parts of the media, certain uh, governments, certain political people of political persuasion, certain political persuasions are investing in. Yep. You know, if you, if um, I, you, when, when we started off talking uh, on this new podcast, car podcast thing, um, you said about how sensible you thought the media were being, and, and on the whole, the media outlets I've well, been looking the media at I read. Are, are, yeah, are re <laughs> have been really good. But if you have a look at the, you just need to have a look at the Daily Mail headlines, yeah. which are and nothing against the Daily Mail, um, but that they, there is a, a particular kind of journalism there that is geared to headlines and is actually, you know, geared at shocking people. I mean, that, you know, to persuade people to buy it, and and a lot of the, a lot of the narratives about contagion and the virus that are coming from the government that are about staying calm. Are being undercut. I've been very interested in the way that the kind of modern history media has responded, responded to it as well. So there are lots of articles online, very straightforward, very predictable. Oh, the history of contagion is this. It's you know the Spanish flu, the Black Death, whatever. It's it's very kind of an obvious and predictable way of doing it. And and lots of discussion about what was the deadliest. Yes. You know, what's the deadliest outbreak? And um, that seems to be a very common trope. Is it the Spanish flu? 50 million people? Okay, yeah. 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 By some margin. 1918. Yeah, by some margin. Yeah. And the problem with the Spanish flu is it kills people aged between 20 and 40. Right. And so all of the breadwinners who've managed, to, luckily, to survive the war get killed. Yes. And so, the, you know, the, war, the whole world's already suffering from the impact of the war, recession anyway, and then suddenly the whole generation who's supposed to save the world and to rebuild a new world, they're all in hospital or they're dead. Yes. Um, so that's a, a, another massive problem. Um, but this, is the, you know, the, why are people so obsessed with what is deadly? And, and why is it a common trope of popular history? Why is it so important? Um, I think I've seen articles on deadliest battles, deadliest shipwrecks, deadliest submarines, revolutions, whatever it might be. I mean, you can, you can do that yourself. I mean, it's actually quite an interesting thing. You can do the deadliest pope or the deadliest king or whatever it might be. Or, or you know, mountains that, you know, that have killed people who've tried to climb it. Um, people the, love a bit of gore. It's the same reason that sharks and Nazis sell on, on TV. Yeah, I think so. But we, we, particularly with the deadliest thing, I think what's happening is that everyone's... OK, it's interesting, um, but there's an instinctive kind of desire to prevent it happening again. Um, and a lot of people come up to me and said, oh, surely we, the only reason, Sam, that we, we study history is that we can learn not to repeat our mistakes, which I think is nonsense. But it's, um, it's, it's true in that a lot of people believe that that is one of the key purposes in history. Therefore, if something is particularly deadly, then they would expect a historian to, to, to confront it. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does, it does. Um, but what I do like about the idea of the deadliest things, having said I think it's annoying, 
is it really does lead you to want to explain what's happening and to, to offer explanations. So, you know, how was it, who was responsible essentially? How did it, how did it occur? And that means that it's very common to be linked with um, cover-ups. Um, there's a really interesting history in people trying to pretend that something hasn't happened to control the media, control the accounts of it. And so you've got editing, you've got all of these uh, fascinating ways in which people try to alter the historical record, which are particular, can become particularly visible and particularly significant when you're discussing an issue about what is the most deadly. So there we go. Excellent. Yeah. But you know, the other way of taking deadly is to look at demography okay. and to look at the demographic impact of um, viruses, disease, plagues, and the, the impact that it had upon the population and therefore on society and therefore on the economy with the, the um, Spanish flu taking out a whole generation of breadwinners, the massive population reductions throughout the medieval world as you get these cyclical plague years and the impact that that has and this links us to somebody like uh, Malthus you know the great uh, sort of thinker about about population and then you think okay what is the reason of disease uh, and viruses like this within the grand scheme of things and is it about self-writing the system yeah. I mean and then and then and that, and that, you see that in the sort of understanding of the natural world and the sort of bio ecosystem and biology. Uh, and also that could then lead you on to how people interpret plagues as, as, as scourges from God upon, upon the population or upon the world. And there are, you know, throughout history there have been different religions that have in, interpreted these kinds of crises in particular ways. And I imagine there are... You know, there are religious leaders today, religious thinkers today, uh, who will be interpreting the current coronavirus in very similar ways. I haven't come across them yet, but I'm absolutely sure, you know, in the sort yeah. of far-right circles, this is being seen as a plague upon um, society for what are seen as society's ills. Yeah, and you get countries blaming each other for it as well, which I think is yes. fascinating. But also, don't be, you know, as a historian, the one thing we know is, is just how powerful... Um, information can be once it's sort of set in stone um, and the, the, you know just be, beware of people manipulating what's going on now the, the classic example is the Spanish flu I've recently discovered this I absolutely love it who got the Spanish flu first uh, not, who, the who, not the Spanish. No, who, no. Who so, so the British had it the French had it and yeah. the Americans had it hmm. and they all managed to control their media the Spanish who had who, who could not um, and so it becomes kind of like some people blaming Spain for having it and also the Spanish saying, oh, we've got a massive problem and there was a big problem everywhere else, but no one had told anyone for fear of causing panic. Yes. Which I think is really, really interesting. So um, I we, think I was going to say that's, um, that's, that's probably us done for Yes, our... as we drive across rumble strips and you can hear our <laughs> shells ricocheting in the back. That, um, um, we promise that's going to be the first of what will be several podcast on this we're going to do I want to do fleas and soap yes um, well we're going to do one on soap do one on fleas we haven't even talked about hands we can do that later yes um, and I think one's particular one's on fear and panic yes conspiracy theories as well because uh, a, a friend of mine who is sort of a spy 
He's sort of a secret agent. <laughs> What's his name? Uh, not, <laughs> no, it, it, you don't know that it, have I said it's a he, it could be a he, she. Um, thinks that it may have been a biological leak from a biological weapons factory. Ah, uh, well, that comes out so of there's a, blaming there's a, people, there's a isn't it? conspiracy theory yeah. there. And I've also read that the, the Chinese are blaming the Americans for germ warfare as well. Yes. So that's not really surprising. No. Yeah. Conspiracy theories have a very yes, straightforward history. Anyway. anyway, we will come back to that. Do please um, tune in. We promise to do a series of these, actually, over the coming weeks. Um, I think we'll do soap next. Excellent. Sound good? Sounds very think, good. What is the history of soap off the top of your head? I'm mm. not sure. Anyway, thanks for listening, guys. Um, do please follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm on at Dr. Sam Willis. And I'm on at James Daybell. And the podcast is on at Unexpected Pod. Do please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com where you can look at all of our mini 120 podcasts. You can read about our book, our series of books. You can see where we're going on tour over the coming weeks. There's an article, um, a big whole page on schools. If you're a history teacher, please, please get in touch with us. We're doing wonderful stuff for schools all over the country. And it's um, giving us great joy. Um, and that's it, really. Uh, anything else to say? Oh, um, yes, hopefully, um, if you want to help us, um, please check out patreon.com forward slash unexpected, where we're trying to raise enough money to be able to record, uh, get some decent recording equipment and improve the quality of the podcast that we get to you guys. Uh, we really enjoy doing it and we want to continue and make it as good as possible. Apart from that, that's it. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you.